Last week I was in an Arabic church in Boston, as you do, and uh, it was a lovely experience. I really enjoyed it, but I have to say it's nice to be able to read the words on the screen and know what we're singing. I could recognize some of the tunes, but I had no clue uh, with the words. But it's so good to be back together uh, with my, my own church family. What a blessing uh, to be here. You know, in life, we tend towards one of two extremes. On the one hand, we buy into the idea that I think Benjamin Franklin said, the American kind of designer um, inventor back in the day, a couple hundred years ago, he said that energy and persistence conquer all things. Right? Energy and persistence conquer all things. And so sometimes we feel like if I can just keep going and I can just keep trying, eventually I'm going to achieve this. And the world around us will tell us, yeah, you've got everything that it takes. Believe in yourself. Look within the kind of the Oprah message of our era is really the same message the world has been saying for a very long time. We can handle it. We can cope. We've just got to keep trying. And sometimes, you know, that may work at a certain level, but sometimes we grow tired and weary of that and we switch to the other extreme. If the first extreme is kind of the we can do it on our own, like when the human, kind of the entire human race came together to build the Tower of Babel and say, God, we don't need you. We can achieve great things on our own. We can also go to the opposite extreme, uh, which is kind of the Sisyphean extreme. There's a word for us. Sisyphus was a, a guy in Greek mythology who lived a life that I won't go into, but at the end of it, he was condemned to an eternal punishment of having to roll a boulder up a hill and then watch it come back down again. And so just fruitless exercise of doing this boulder rolling forever, never achieving anything. And from his name, we get the idea of a Sisyphean task. I think the best way to describe it is trying to keep your house tidy when you've got children. No matter how much you do, it always goes back to the way it was. And with that kind of experience, we tend to switch from, yes, energy and persistence conquer all things. I can do it. I can cope. And we switch to the opposite, which is sort of the Buddhist extreme of just kind of sitting still, staring at our navels, doing nothing, because what's the point of doing anything? So either we think we can do it, or we think that we can't, and there's no point. Either we think that work is the thing, or we think that laziness is the thing, and we discover actually that both extremes are very unsatisfying. Both extremes are just the outworking of human nature in a fallen world, in a world where we've lost track of the fact, we've lost sight of the fact that God designed us for work, but he designed us for work with him. We all have a tendency in a fallen world to spin our wheels on pointless projects. Have you noticed that? How easy it is to while away a few hours giving yourself to something that at the end of it you look back and say, why did I bother? What was the point of that? And so in a world where we have this tendency to forget God or to push God to one side and think that we can do it, if we just put in enough energy and enough persistence, we can conquer anything, what, what does that lead to? If we go down that route, which is the tendency in Western culture to work hard and to kind of do the work ethic thing, what that tends to lead to is anxiety and stress and fatigue and exhaustion. It leads to burnout. 
And the passage that we're going to look at today, look at today in the Psalms, is part of this collection of Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. And it's actually the critical one. It's the central one in the whole collection. And I'll explain what they were for again in a minute. But the thing about this Psalm is that it gives us perspective for life that is so critical in every sphere of life. Especially because we have this tendency to spin our wheels on pointless projects. So it's Psalm 127. I'm guessing that's page 518 in a black Bible. Amazing. I love how they match. So page 518, you'll see a a collection of uh, different short psalms on that page. These are poems or songs that the Jews used. And in this part of the book, between 120 and 134, there's a collection of 15 psalms that are all, they all have the same title at the top. It says, a psalm of ascents, or is that what it says here? A song of ascents. Ascent as in climbing up. And, and these were a collection of 15. It's like a mini hymn book for the Jews, if you can imagine it. Okay, so as the Jews came up to Jerusalem on their pilgrimages each year, they would have this little collection of, of songs in their pocket. They would pull this collection out and they would quote them to each other and they would sing them together. Think of a group of football fans in a minibus going to the stadium. They have a whole set of songs. They don't need words and they probably wouldn't want to write them down anyway. But these were the Jewish words for the songs that they would sing as they traveled up to Jerusalem. Three times a year, God's people, the Jews, were required to travel, if they could, up to Jerusalem for three feasts, three big parties. There was Passover, there was Pentecost, and then at the other end of the year there was Tabernacles. Three feasts or parties that were all designed to celebrate a salvation to which they had contributed nothing. This wasn't a pilgrimage where, if I can just make it, God will smile on me kind of pilgrimage. This was a, God has smiled on me, I need to make this pilgrimage to say thank you. Okay, it's God's blessing first, and then the people celebrating in response. Just like we have with communion. We celebrate a salvation to which we've contributed nothing. And so these people would be coming up to Jerusalem, traveling uh, up those steep winding pathways from uh, maybe down from Jericho all the way up 3,000 feet of elevation from Jericho below sea level to Jerusalem up above and climbing up through the hills, heading towards the city of Jerusalem. And as they traveled, they were excited. They were excited to be together. They were excited to be in the place where God's temple was, where God's presence was dwelling in the midst of his people. They were excited to have the the food and the, the singing and the meeting of friends and all of that stuff. And so they sang these songs. And this song in particular is absolutely critical to the whole collection. There's 15 of them, and this is the middle one. Now, for us, middle is not a big deal. We tend to think first and last in the way that we organize things. But for the Jews, they would often make everything point towards the center. And actually, if you want to do it, you can uh, lay them all out and notice that either side, the Psalms have something in common, and then the next two, and then the next two, right the way out to 120 and 134. I'm not expecting you, honestly, to do that, but you're welcome to do it. And you'll find that they're all pointing towards this middle one, which is a psalm recognizing God's role in all that they have. Let's read it together, and then 
we'll make sense of it, hopefully. A song of ascent of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So you've got two verses where it's giving the principle, and then the three verses where it's giving an example of the principle. Okay, so the children part is really just one example, and we'll see that the same principle applies in lots of different spheres of life. But first of all, look at the principle that's being presented in verses 1 and 2. Only when we work with God is our effort not in vain. Okay, so notice the in vain language, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And then in verse 2, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Quite negative stuff, isn't it? It's in vain, it's in vain, it's in vain. And here, as they're singing this song, climbing towards Jerusalem, they would be thinking about the the great temple, the house of God there in Jerusalem. And and they would be tempted, as we all are as humans, to praise the builder on a human level. Oh, look what King Solomon has given us. Isn't it amazing, the house of the Lord? But unless the Lord builds it, it's a waste of energy. Isn't it great that we're going to Jerusalem and there's the kind of police force, the watchman guarding the city at night, and I hope they don't miss anything because I don't want to be attacked by the enemies. But we don't want to give credit there because unless the Lord watches over the city, it doesn't matter whether they're awake or not. And then down to a personal level, verse 2, getting up early and staying up late and working and being all stressed and anxious, it's in vain. Implication, if God is not in it. You see, it's very easy for us as humans to push God to one side and to take the credit for ourselves and to act as if our projects are our projects, to act as if it's down to us and we're going to do it and we're going to achieve it and energy plus persistence equals the conquering of all things. And this psalm says, no, it's not. If God's not in it, it's a complete waste of energy. That's true with what they're describing, but isn't that true in our experience as well? Think about this church, for example. I was thinking about the amount of work that's gone into getting this church going so far. Three years ago, uh, August 2013, there was a little bit of conversation with just a few people. And then we had a few months of prayer meetings, and then we started meeting on the first Sunday in 2014. Still remember coming in trying to find the light switch in this room, which is quite important uh, to find if you're going to have church in here. I still remember our first visitors, Adam and Miriam Ovens, who ended up joining us, and we thank God for them. First morning, how did they find us? We couldn't even find it. 
but they were here. And, and then the, the weeks passed by and the different things came into place, the sound system and then the, also the, the toddlers or the, the tots out there, the creche, uh, and eventually the, the kids' program upstairs that started in the foyer because we didn't have use of the upstairs rooms. And, and that grew and eventually divided into two groups. Think of the refreshments and all the things that have gone into organizing and planning and making this happen. Every week for almost 140 weeks, people, uh, let's just name them, especially Paul and David and David and Esther and, and others have come in and carried in all this equipment and organized the chairs and the tables and poured the juice into the cups. It's a lot of work. There's been a lot of work behind the scenes, getting the refreshments ready, getting a curriculum chosen and, and weeks of, of, uh, of presentations prepared for the different kids' programs, all the safeguarding manual that, that Dave and Hannah and others put hours and hours into. There's been an awful lot of work that has gone into this church, the life groups, the elders' meetings, uh, the sermon preparation, there's been a lot of it. In fact, I, I did a little bit of mathematics and rough estimate, not counting just being here, which does matter and does count, and not counting one-on-one -on -one meetings with people and, and kind of caring for one another, which of course is the heartbeat of the church. Just thinking program. I worked it out that there has been at least probably quite a bit more than 9,000 man-hours person hours, human hours, put in to Trinity Chippenham so far. We praise God for that. We, th we thank God for that. If it wasn't for each other and for the work that goes in behind the scenes, driving the van and packing the van and organizing weekends away and all the different parts of church life, if it wasn't for that work, it, it really wouldn't be that special to be here. But actually, we've got to remember that unless the Lord builds the church, all of our labor is in vain. Unless the Lord builds the church, it's only God who can bring about heart change, isn't it? It's only God that can reach through into the kind of smoky, misty confusion of a human heart and say, knock, knock, I'm here, I love you, would you trust me and, and invite us into relationship with him? We can never do that. It's only God that can reach into a life and grow and mature it towards Christ-likeness. Unless the Lord builds Trinity Chippenham, we labor in vain who build it. Think about work. If you have a job, you get up maybe Monday morning and Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning, Thursday, Friday. It just goes on and on. If, we, uh, if I had the time, I could have worked out how many hours a career would take. That's probably quite frightening. All your best hours of all your best days invested into a company, into the factory, into the office, into the farm, into the hospital, wherever it is that you work, and you pour out all of that work and how easily we push God to one side and say, I can handle this. I've been trained for this. I'm the expert in this. God, you're good at Sunday stuff, but I'm the trained optician. I'm the trained doctor. I'm the experienced farmer. I'm the trained factory worker. I'm the trained nurse, and I've got this. And how sad and how easy it would be for us to give 20, 30, 40 years of our lives to something without involving God. And for this passage to stand up and declare, unless the Lord nurses, unless the Lord farms, unless the Lord administrates, unless the Lord accounts, unless the Lord is at work, your work is in vain. 
It's wasted effort and it can count for nothing. That would be terrible, wouldn't it? Start a business. That's a kind of work plus, isn't it? You don't get to come home when you start a business. And how easy it is to say, well, I'm the one with business savvy. I'm the one with the idea. I'm the one with the connections. God, I thank you for Sunday, but I'll just leave you behind because I need to pour my life into this. And yet how many stories of businesses do we hear that start and then finish? Half of all UK startups die within the first five years. And that doesn't leave people back where they started It leaves them with a great hole, all their resources, all their energy, all their dreams, all their hopes, gone, burned up. Businesses, starting your own business can be the most soul-destroying thing. And then to discover that you did it in your own strength and left God out, unless the Lord builds the business, they labor in vain who build it. You see, we could take this principle and we could apply it to every area of life because the Bible says God cares about every area of our lives. And God cares about us totally. And if we think we can handle it without him, this passage says, wake up. There's no way, it's not possible for it to have any lasting meaning if God is left out. But then we get to the end of verse 2, and you get this little line that is the key to the entire passage. This little line turns the whole thing around. It takes it from being sort of a guilt trip into being an incredible celebration of God's grace towards the undeserving. At the end of verse 2, it says these seven words, For he gives to his beloved sleep. He gives to his beloved sleep sleep. The he there is God, and God gives, shouldn't surprise us, all through the Bible we see that God is a giver to his beloved sleep. Now, this is a psalm written by Solomon. Solomon was, uh, the, in, in the Jewish way of thinking, Solomon was the greatest king in their history. They, they celebrate David, but really it was the age of Solomon that was the golden age. It was in the age of Solomon that, that the wars were finished. There was no more killing needing to be done. It was in the age of Solomon that the borders had expanded to the widest point that they have ever been up to this date in human history for the nation of Israel. It was in the days of Solomon that the great temple was built. And so for the Jews, they look back on the time of Solomon and they go, wow, look at that. But then you read this verse, written presumably by Solomon, that's what it says. And who does God, Solomon give credit to? He gives credit to God. He says, the Lord, God, gives to his beloved sleep. Actually, what he says is, he gives to his beloved in his sleep. Which is interesting, because for Solomon, when he began as king... God came to Solomon in a dream and appeared to him and said, Solomon, what do you want? I'll give you anything you want as you embark on being king. And Solomon said, I want wisdom. And God said, okay, I'll give you the greatest wisdom there is, my wisdom. And Solomon was then able to do all that he did, including building the temple, with the wisdom that God had given him. And just to make sure that Solomon couldn't take credit for anything, God gave it to him while he was snoring on his bed. There was nothing about Solomon that had kind of worked this up or earned this. He received the greatest gift while he was fast asleep in dreamland. God gives to his beloved sleep. And we can take that two ways. 
We can take it just at the simple level that, that we work at building the house and we work at watching the city and we work at our career and we work at our business, whatever it is we're doing. We work and we work at tidying the house and we run out of energy and we run out of steam and sometimes we just need to crash and sleep. God gives to his beloved sleep. We saw in Psalm 121 a few weeks ago that God never sleeps. God neither slumbers nor sleeps. That means he he never misses anything. He's always alert. He's always on top of things. We never need to worry about God being kind of distracted or, or dozing or meditating, as my dad used to call it. God is always alert and he's always on top of things. And yet he knows we need to rest. And so actually sometimes... The greatest act of faith is for us to say, God, I'm tired and I'm casting all my cares on you because you care for me and I'm going to sleep now. Thank you so much. That's an act of faith. For some of us, uh, parenting just kind of wraps its tentacles around our hearts and we feel like we've got to be alert all the time. But it's an act of faith to say, God, I entrust my children to you. I'm going to sleep. Thank you. For some of us, work is this all-consuming thing that there's the, always more to do than we get done. And yet sometimes to just to go to sleep is an act of faith. It's a good thing. To take a day off, for some of us, that's really hard, isn't it? But to say, you know, I'm going to take a break and I'm going to be with the family or I'm going to be with friends. I'm going to, I'm going to refresh and relax, not because I've got nothing to do, but because I've got things to do. And I know that I can't do it. I know that I cannot cope, and so by faith I take a break. And God gives us the privilege of rest. And so we could take it at that level, but I think it goes further than that. I think it says, for he gives to his beloved in his sleep for a reason. That is that when we cannot take another step because we're so wiped out, God continues to work. When we've given everything in all the different spheres of our life and we go to bed and we commit those things to him, he keeps working. The farmer, whether he wakes or sleeps, doesn't know how, but the seed grows and God gets the credit. And God is at work in all of our lives and all the things that we care about. If we will just trust him, he gives even in our sleep. Isn't that an amazing thought? That the things that are burdening you and the things that are weighing you down, you can cast your cares on him and he will care for you even while you're snoring, while you're in dreamland, he's still at work. While every one of us is fast asleep on our pillows, God is at work building this church. While every one of us is, is lying in our bed, God is at work in our family and knows that we care about because God is a God who gives. It's in his nature to give to his beloved, even in his sleep. There's a beautiful verse that that this kind of uh, resonates with or, or maybe reminds the Jews of, I think, from the end of Deuteronomy. Let me just read it to you where it says this, the beloved of the Lord, speaking of Benjamin, but another person loved by God, the beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and he dwells between his shoulders. Here's the image, I think. If I take uh, Kayla out and we go into town or something to run some errands, um, she doesn't have the capacity to keep walking as much as I do. 
All right, her little legs get tired long before mine do. And it doesn't take long before she kind of squeezes my hand, pulls on my arm, looks up and says, Daddy, can you carry me, please? Hopefully says, please. Daddy, can you carry me? And so I can pick her up and I can hold her here still. I can lift her up onto my shoulders or I can put her onto my back. And when she's on my back with her arms kind of around my neck, she's not doing a thing, but we're still making progress. And she's safely between my shoulder blades. I think that's the image in Deuteronomy. That the beloved of the Lord is safely between God's shoulder blades, that he's carrying us. You know, if we could get some sort of strap or whatever, Kayla could be fast asleep on my back and I could keep walking and she could wake up and we'd be somewhere else. We can get to our destination without her effort. And that's the truth for those of us who are God's children. That he can carry us and he does carry us safely between his shoulders as we entrust ourselves to him. It's a beautiful image, isn't it? That even while we sleep, God continues to work on those projects that are shared projects. On the things that God is involved in, the work continues when we've got nothing left to give. And from verses 3 to 5, really the, 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 the truth that comes out of this is that actually God gives us way more fruit than our efforts deserve. All right? it's, it's true, isn't it, that as we invest ourselves in God-given projects, in God projects, the fruit that comes is way beyond our effort. And the example that Solomon gives is the example of children. I think you could say this is sort of the preeminent example, especially tying back to the idea of being given something in your sleep. All right, no matter how hard you work, you cannot achieve a child. A child is a gift from God that comes in the context of our rest. You can figure that out. Right? It's, a, it's a gift that comes from our uh, lack of productivity, if, if you like. I think it's worth saying, obviously, that in a fallen world, it doesn't always work the way it should. We all have experienced or know somebody that has not been able to have children. Somebody who's maybe conceived but not been uh, privileged with the opportunity to give birth because they've lost the child during pregnancy. Maybe we know someone who's lost a child uh, subsequent, which, of course, is an even different kind of pain. Then there's the pain of not being able to conceive in the first place or the pain of not being able to get married when you want to. There's all the different complexities. And we, we sort of understand that from our own experience and, and friends' experience. God fully understands that. He knows that. He, he's, he's not giving us this psalm to kind of rub our faces in the most painful thing that maybe we've experienced. But what he's describing here is a God project par excellence. Think of this church, we were just chatting before the service about uh, on a full Sunday, how many children are in that room and how many children are upstairs. It's like we're, we're overrun with little ones and it's so, uh, so amazing to have so much little pattering of feet and energy in this place and what a privilege that is. And as we parent and as we aunt and uncle, you know, and that sort of Christian aunt and uncle for one another's families, caring for the children, the investment that we make matters. They're a heritage, they're a reward, they're a gift. And the fruit that we get from that is far greater than the investment that we make. If we fast forward 20, 30 years, 
so that those of us who've got little ones now are at the empty nest stage. And let's say that we were able to kind of do a little, uh, little camera visit to all these little kids of Trinity Chippenham who are now all across the world doing different things. It would be so easy, wouldn't it, to say, oh, wow, look at these people and what they're doing. And, and Trinity Chippenham parents, you did a wonderful job. And I think every one of us at that point would say, anything good that's come out of my parenting is a gift from God. Because we know how we fail. We know how we fall short. We know how we lose our temper. We know how we struggle to give the love that the child needs. And yet when we collapse in exhaustion, God continues to give. So that in that day, if that day comes when anybody says something nice about our grown children, I'm sure that every one of us will say, you know what, it was a privilege to be involved, but it was God who was at work. Unless the Lord raises the children, we labor in vain. But the fact is, God does. It is a God project. We don't have to question it. Whether they're ours by birth, whether they're ours by adoption, whether they're ours by fostering, whether they're ours for a weekend, God gives us the blessing, but God does the work. And we can lean on him for that. As we go to work each day, we can be going to work as part of a God project saying, Lord, you're the one who cares for people. I'm a trained nurse, but you're the ultimate caregiver. I'm going to take you by the hand and ask you, what do you have for me today? As I go into the factory, you're the ultimate creator. I'm going to take you by the hand and ask you what you have for us to do today. As I go out onto the the field of the farm, as I go into the office, as I go visit that client, Lord, you're the one that can do this. I want this to be your project, not mine. And so I'm going to take you by the hand and I'm going to walk into this situation. And as I walk out of it, I'm going to look to you like a four-year-old looking to daddy and say, daddy, what, what, what more are you going to do? What are you going to do when I'm asleep? By the way, I'm tired. Can you carry me? And we can go into work for a career with that kind of mindset because we have that kind of God who gives even when we are absolutely wiped out. We can trust him with a business. We can start a business and we can let God be at the very center of it. I was reading about a a chap called Anthony Rossi, an Italian Sicilian who moved to America after the Second World War. He didn't speak a word of English When he got to America, I think he was in New York to begin with, he learned English and he connected, I think it was a Methodist church and they shared the gospel of Jesus with him and he became a follower of Jesus. And he realized that if Jesus has died for me and if Jesus loves me, Jesus cares about every aspect of my life, I want Jesus to be at the center of my business. And he determined to make every business decision a prayerful decision. And he determined to make all profit, God profit. He wanted it to go to his work. A few years later, he ended up buying a fruit business in Florida. And he came up with this radical idea. You won't believe it. He thought, what if I can take fresh oranges and squeeze them and put the freshly squeezed orange juice into the same containers as milk and then ship it out across the country? What do you think, Lord? Would that be a good idea? Tropicana became the number one fresh fruit juice business I think in the world. And he continued to pray and trust God and put God at the center of everything and God honored that business. Fast forward a few years, in 1983, Town and Country magazine ran an article on the 10 most generous Americans and Anthony Rossi was one of them. 
He'd given money to building churches in Sicily and, and supporting missionaries. He, he created a retirement village, village is an understatement, a retirement facility for missionaries in Florida on 100 acres of land. He just kept giving. But it wasn't about him. It was about the God who was at the center of his business. You see, whether we're thinking about work or business, whether we're thinking about family or whether we're thinking about church, these can all be God projects. And the thousands of hours that we put into Trinity Chippenham, whether it's working with the kids upstairs or downstairs, behind the scenes, refreshments, weekend away, dealing with the church accounts, dealing with church emails, whatever it is that we're giving ourselves to, it's not wasted energy. And God invites us to give ourselves to things that he's involved in, knowing that there will be times where we just collapse on his back. And when we come round, we'll discover that he's kept on walking. The journey is carried on. The work has continued because he's the one who gives. Our God is a gracious God. He's a gracious God, not just on Sundays, but on Mondays too. Not just in church, but in the home and in the workplace. He wants to give. And the ultimate expression of that we've already celebrated with communion. That God is willing to give to the undeserving the opportunity to have life to the full, to be in relationship with him, not because we've earned it, but because he loves and he gives. We've celebrated a salvation to which we've contributed nothing. And this psalm tells us to celebrate the opportunity to live life not based on what we can achieve, not based on how hard we can work, but to give ourselves knowing that when we are all wiped out and snoring, God is still giving. Because unless the Lord builds the business, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord builds the career, it's a waste of time going into work. Unless the Lord raises the children, it's not going to be pretty. Unless the Lord builds the church. Even that is a waste of our energy, but we don't need to waste any energy because he loves to give. Let me pray, and then we're just going to take a few moments to reflect on the message, and I'll explain that to you. Father, we just want to confess that we're so, so quick to think that we can handle things in our own strength. Please forgive us for that. Forgive us for thinking that we can do work or business or family or church or anything else in our own strength, thinking that we can cope. And we ask, Lord, that you would grip us with the reality of your graciousness and help us to, to realize who it is that carries us, how secure we are in your arms, and the fact that we can even go to sleep on your back and you'll continue the journey. You'll continue the work. Lord, we pray that you would show us how we can invite you into the heart of our lives more and more, into the different spheres of all that we do. Please, would you be at work there because it's you that's a gracious giver. It's not us who can achieve and earn in our own strength. We love you and we pray that you would guide our thinking even now in Jesus' name. Amen.